0: Jehu assembled all the people and said to them Ahab served Baal a little but Jehu will serve him much. Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshippers and all his priests. Let none be missing for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal, whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshippers of Baal. And Jehu ordered sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all Israel, and all the worshippers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. They entered the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. He said to them who was in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out the vestments for all the worshippers of Baal so he brought out the vestments for them. Then Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab the son of Rechab, and he said to the worshippers of Baal, search and see there is no servant of the Lord here among you, but only the worshippers of Baal. Then they went in to offer us sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed 80 men outside and said, The man who allows any of those who might give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. So as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guard and to the officers, Go in and strike them down, let not a man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went into the inner room of the house of Baal and they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it. And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel, but Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That is the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all of his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin in those days the lord began to cut off parts of israel ezael defeated them throughout the territory of israel from the jordan eastward all the land of gilead the gadites the reubenites and the manassites from Aroer, which is in the valley of arnon that is gilead and bashan now the rest of the acts of jehu and all that he did and all his might Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehu slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. And Jehoahaz, his son, reigned in his place. The time that Jehu reigned over Israel
1: in Samaria was
0: 28 years.
1: G'day City on a Hill, hope and pray you are keeping well. It's the first weekend of December, which means Christmas is coming. Hope you're looking forward to that season. Hope you're looking forward to the opportunity we have to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. When well, the lead up to Christmas, we are flicking the pages of the Old Testament and getting up close and personal with some of the, the kings that ruled over ancient Israel. In week one, who did we meet? Solomon, Solomon, man of incredible wealth and fortune and fame and prosperity, whose life in the end was nothing more than a chasing after the wind. And then last week, we stepped into the arena with Ahab and his lovely wife, Jezebel. If Solomon's reign is to be remembered for his gold and silver, Ahab and Jezebel are to be remembered for their violence and their evil. Their reign uh, plunged Israel into a spiral of oppression, tyranny, and idolatry. And so, when we left last week, we left wondering when the madness will end. Who would stop this reign of terror? Who would challenge this empire of evil? Today, we meet a new king. His name, Jehu. Do you have a Bible? love you to go and grab it now and come with me to 2 Kings chapter 9. Beginning in verse 9, this is what we read. Now, Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth-Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi. Now, it's about... Uh, 900 years before Christ, and we're in the northern kingdom of Israel. And it's here that we find Elisha, who is on the cusp of a revolution. Elisha calls one of the sons of the prophets. In Hebrew, this, this could be one of his assistants or co-workers or what me, we might call an intern. And, and this intern, like all good interns, is given a great and significant job. Elisha says, roll up your sleeves, grab a flask of oil and seek out a man named Jehu. And who is Jehu? Jehu is a chief commander in the military. Now by show of emojis, who's ever served or known someone uh, who served in the army? I um, was part of a leadership course, a uh, Christian leadership course, one's called ARROW. And on the graduating night dinner, uh, we heard from Jim Wallace. Jim Wallace. Those of you who don't know, Jim served in the army for uh, 32 years, reaching the rank of brigadier. At one point, he was the commander of the SAS. Right, the SAS, that the killing fighting machine. And I never forget after his presentation. All the guys just surrounding him like teenage girls at an Ed Sheeran concert. At an Ed Sheeran concert, right? They were just hanging off his every word. And I remember this one guy. Uh, he he grabbed a, a spoon, a little teaspoon, and he held it out to held it out to Jim and said, "Jim, could you kill a man with this spoon?" And Jim looks at the spoon and looks at the guy and says, "I don't need that spoon." <laughs> All the guys jump back in awe. Right? When it comes to Jehu. I see a certain gravitas, a certain grit, a man who needs no spoon. And Elisha says to the intern, find him. And when you do, take him somewhere quiet, somewhere no one else is looking, grab your flask of oil and pour it on his head. Now, of course, in the ancient world, the pouring out of oil was a symbol of the pouring of God's spirit, the anointing of God, of a a new king. And so Elisha says, I want you to pour the oil and tell him that he's been chosen by God to serve as Israel's king. The intern does exactly that, grabs the oil, finds Jehu, brings him somewhere quiet, pours the oil on his head and then says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel and you shall strike down the house of Ahab your master so that i may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants the prophets and the blood of all the servants of the lord for the whole house of Ahab shall perish and i'll cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in israel and i'll make the house of Ahab like the house of jeroboam the son of nebat and like the house of baasha the son of Ahijah, and the dog shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Now, if you missed last week, Ahab, King Ahab, was a nasty piece of work. In fact, he is described as the king who had done more evil than any other king before him. And his evil and the evil of his wife, Jezebel, was evident not only in the punishment, And Cruelty they inflicted on the poor and the powerless, but the way they uh, exchanged worship for the one true God to then bow down to the idols and pagan gods of their surrounding culture. Now at the time of Jehu's anointing, Ahab had already died in battle, but Jezebel and the empire of evil was very much alive and well. And so here's Jehu with oil on his head, being told by God that he's the new king, tasked with a challenging, confronting call to strike down the empire of Ahab. He shares this with his fellow officers who are thrilled by the news. We read, In haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. And one of the things you need to know about Jehu is that he doesn't mess around. After a few celebratory drinks, Jehu steps into action, right? And he hears that uh, Joran, one of Ahab's sons, who was the king of the northern kingdom, is actually in a town called Jezreel. And so Jehu jumps into his chariot and rides to the city. And the two men face off in an open field in a moment that's kind of, fitting of Game of Thrones. I should say I've never seen Game of Thrones, but it's how I imagine the scene would have gone down. Duran looks to Jehu and says, is it peace, Jehu? In other words, are we on good terms? Have you come in peace? Jehu, not one for small talk, says, what keep peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many. How's that for breaking the ice? All right? So Jehu hasn't come for jam and scones and so Jeram runs in search for his brother and Ahab's second son who's the king over the southern kingdom and yet no sooner does he warn his brother of the coup that Jehu finds them both standing together and he pulls back his arrow, shoots it through his shoulders right in the middle of the heart. Jeram slumps over into the chariot. His brother, the other king, tries to flee. Jehu chases him down and kills him as well. Pulling the arrow out of their backs, kings then goes on to say that Jehu makes his way to the palace of Jezebel herself. Uh, We're told in Kings that upon seeing Jehu from her tower above, uh, Jezebel paints her eyes and adorns her head. But the makeover does nothing to pacify Jehu, who on his command, the eunuchs of Jezebel surround her, seize her, grab her, throw her out the top window and she falls to her death on the pavement below. Jezebel's blood is splattered on the pavement and as was prophesied, her body is eaten by dogs. But for Jehu, the job is not even over. In the very next scene, we're told that Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. And so Jehu uh, sends a text to the officials in the city of Samaria. Essentially, he says, dear city officials, The 70 sons of Ahab are residing in your city. And so I thought I'd drop by and say, hi. And by hi, he means I'm coming for blood. I'm coming for war. And who wants to fight Jehu? These officials certainly don't want any part of it. And so they run in a mad panic and they grab a phone and they craft a carefully composed text message, right? You know, the ones where you kind of, labor over every single word hoping you don't send it too early this is what they say dearest jehu we are your servants and we will do all that you tell us we will not make anyone king do whatever is good in your eyes smiley face hashtag please don't kill us jehu sees the text and he responds with a very simple solution dear city officials If you are on my side and if you are ready to obey me, take the heads of your master's sons and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow at this time. Smiley face, hashtag pack a lunch. So fearing for their own lives, the city officials do exactly that. They slaughter the 70 sons, putting each of their heads in a basket and they meet Jeru at Jezreel. And this, I've got to tell you, leads to a very uh, confusing slash bizarre moment. Um, standing before the officials, the city leaders in Samaria, who, by the way, are holding the heads of the 70 sons in picnic baskets, Jehu says, you are innocent of your king's death. I am the one responsible for this coup and responsible for his death, Right. But no sooner does he take responsibility for the murder of the king that he points to the heads of the 70 sons with bewilderment. He says, It was I who conspired against my master and killed him, but who struck down all these? In other words, I killed the king, but who cut the heads of the 70 sons? Now, at this point, you're probably scratching your head. (laughs) I mean, what's going on here? Is, is Jehu just messing around, playing a, a mind game with him? Or could it be that somehow something got lost in translation, right? In the ancient world, the head of a family was usually the father or the carer or the guardian of children. Could it be that when Jehu said, bring the, head, the heads of the 70 sons, he was talking about their guardians, talking about those who were charged to look after the 70 boys. And of course, that's not how the city officials read the text. In any event, Jehu acknowledges that their death and the death of all in Ahab's family was in fulfillment of the prophecy given to the Lord's servant, Elijah. And so we read, Jehu struck down all who remained in the house of Ahab in Jezreel, all his great men and his close friends and his priests until he left him none Remaining. Of course, you'll remember that Jehu's mission was not only about bringing down Ahab's uh, empire, it was also about tearing down the idols, the false idols, the worship of Baal. Right? And so, towards the the end of the chapter, Jehu calls for a special night of worship, a huge celebration in honor of of their pagan king, Baal. Apparently, he put up flyers all over Israel. There's going to be singing and dancing. There's going to be jumping castle and confetti machines, and there's going to be merchandise for Baal, all your favorite merchandise, 10% off whatever. There's going to be wristbands and T-shirts and funny hats. You can get it all at this very special night of worship for Baal. Right? And the priests and the prophets are frothing over this. This is amazing. We're going to worship Baal. And all through Israel, near and far, people came with their banners and musical instruments ready to worship Baal. And once they got into the temple of Baal, what does Jehu do? You guessed it, he kills them all. Right? The entire, uh, all who were worshiping Baal are put. To death, And not only that, look at what the soldiers do in the very next moment. Verse 26, they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it. And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. The great idol of Baal was turned into a public toilet just to remind Israel of the true place of idolatry. And thus, in the closing credits, we're told, Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. Now, at this point, you might be scratching your head and asking, why is it that Jehu didn't turn up in my kid's Bible? Why is it we haven't heard a song from Colin Buchanan about the 70 heads in picnic baskets or the God who became a toilet? It's a fair question. Because if I can be real with you, in all my years as a Christian, I have never once heard a sermon or a song or a Bible study or a devotion about Jehu. And I think I know why. All right, if we're honest, Jehu's story is messy. It's bloody. It's violent. There's murder. There's death. It's basically Squid Game for Christians. So what do you do with this? How is a story like Jehu, King Jeho, Jehu supposed to equip us and encourage us? As I took this to the Lord in prayer, as I've been reading on this and reflecting on this and journaling on this. I want to share just two observations. For example, number one, the story of Jehu, it does remind me that God is not indifferent when it comes to evil and oppression and idolatry. God's not indifferent, right? The sword of Jehu is confronting, isn't it? It's, it's, it's hard to, to reconcile all that violence with the, the love of God. But I've come to realize that the blood of this revolution must be seen in light of the tyranny that was plaguing God's people. Ahab's reign, let's not sugarcoat this, it was evil, it was horrendous, Jezebel, ruthless. And not only did they build their empire on blood and oppressing the poor and brutalizing the powerless, they exchanged the worship of God for a lie, and in many ways Baal was the perfect God for Jezebel and Ahab because, in many ways, Baal was just a projection of their own lust and sin. You know, if you flick through the history books, you'll see that that Baal, you know, of course, was this fertility god and this god of thunder, was also a god that just rubber stamped sexual promiscuity. Right? So you get these stories of temple prostitutes and mass orgies and all this other kind of degrading stuff. And then think about the sacrifices. Right? In the ancient world, the gods required you to sacrifice. And so if you wanted to win their favor, you had to sacrifice something important. Right. Well, when you've got no value for life and law resides in the mind of man, you then get these terrible stories of men sacrificing, literally sacrificing their own children. Right? They were killing people. It's horrendous, all in the name of worship. Okay, so what are you going to do with that? In our day, let's be honest, we idolize tolerance. Our culture says you're free to believe whatever you want to believe. You can live that way or that way. In the end, it doesn't matter as long as you are what? But what happens when happiness comes at the cost of others? What happens when your life and your beliefs and your behavior dishonors God and brings harm to the world that God created and the world that God cares about? Is God to look on with indifference? Can God wipe his hands and stand silent forever? Growing up, my um, brother's best mate was Simon. And Simon um, met a girl probably in his late teens, uh, long-term relationship. Uh, her name was Britt Lapthorne. And uh, as you can see, uh, she was a student uh, in Melbourne, um, young girl they had been in a relationship for some time. And on her 21st birthday, her parents bought her a backpack Uh, so that she could travel the world. And the parents, you know, were proud of their little girl and her ambition and her adventure and her desire to see the world and they'd look forward to meeting up with her on her 21st birthday in Paris. Tragically, that day never came. Brit was last seen in a nightclub in Croatia. Um, Days later, Brit's remains were found by fishermen in the water off the coast of Dubrovnik, and it's, a, it's believed her body was dumped in the sea way down in the hours after she disappeared. Twelve months after Brit's death, the parents returned again to Croatia, and they shared these words: "It's our mission to do as much as we possibly can to solve this, to help Brit, to help us." One of the reasons we're here again is because as parents, we have to know what happened to Brit that night and why it happened and how it happened. And then they added, listen in, in all honesty, we never expect an outcome. We are firmly of the belief that nobody will ever be brought to justice, but we are not going to stop. We can't stop. Now, it's in moments like that, that remind me, that remind us all that our world needs justice. And I'm convinced that our longing for justice exists because we've been made in the image and likeness of God. God is grieved by evil. The ungodliness and arrogance of this world and its idolatry fills up his righteous anger. And God is committed to seeing its end. In the story of Jehu, God demonstrates to us all that He will not stand in silence. He will not ignore the terror and tyranny of evil. God may not execute judgment in the same way He did in Kings, but you only need to peek into the window of revelation to know that a day is coming where the ultimate and final judgment will arrive. Just as Jehu brought down the house of Jehab, so we who are in Christ look forward to the day that God will throw evil out from the palace of her power. Have you been afflicted by evil? Have you been deceived by the emptiness of idolatry? Have you been weighed down by the darkness of this world? The story of Jehu speaks of God's justice, and it declares our hope. But you know what else? In the story of Jehu, I'm challenged that in the face of evil, God is calling us to step up and take action. You see, one of the observations I have is that Christians, like me, can be really big when it comes to our words. We're big on what we know big on what we say, big on what we believe. And there's something right to that. You know, salvation is not by works, but by faith. And it occurs to me that sometimes we can be so vocal about the centrality of our faith and what we believe that we reduce Christianity to nothing more than intellectual exercise. Salvation is by faith alone, but as the reformers famously said, The faith that saves is never alone. As James, the brother of Jesus said, faith without works is dead. In other words, don't just tell me of your faith, show me of your faith. Show me the way your faith is changing the way you engage with sin and push back temptation. Show me the way that faith has transformed you to be more compassionate to the poor, more loving to the powerless. Show me the way faith has inspired a humility and courage that has equipped you, called you to stand up in the face of evil and push back the darkness with light, right? And this is where I'm challenged by Jehu because he doesn't just sit on his hands watching TV and talking about faith. He lives it. His faith required action. His faith required obedience. Is it messy? Yes, clearly. Is it dripping with blood? No doubt. But he is to be commended for his faithfulness, a faithfulness that was willing to stand up and drive a dagger into the heart of the beast. And while it would be tempting for us to kind of relegate stories like this to the Old Testament, we need to see and you need to see that the same fire of justice was very much alive in the eyes of Christ. Jesus, the suffering servant, the son of a carpenter, born of a virgin, welcome children, embraced the weary. But He's also the true and better King who came to wage war. In the Bible, we see Jesus confronting the religious hypocrites and calling out their evil. In Jesus, we see the one who entered into the temple, saw the idolatry, made a whip and turned the tables on its head. In Jesus, we see him staring down evil, casting out the devil and going to that brutal and bloody cross. Why? To disarm the ancient foe, the evil one, the deceiver. And what about his return? You know, at Christmas, we will huddle up together and get around baby Jesus. right? Baby Jesus, so cute, you just want to squeeze his cheeks. right? He's a picture of weakness and, and vulnerability. But this is not the Jesus you will see on his return. He will not come back on a donkey. The Bible says that when he returns, he's coming riding a white horse. His eyes will be like flames of fire. We're told that on his, I think it's his right thigh, he will have tattooed on his leg, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. And what comes from his mouth? A sharp double-edged sword with which he will use to bring judgment to evil. He will strike down the evil one and he will put death to death. Now, am I saying that Jesus was a warrior who came to start violence? No, not at all. I'm sure there are times that he wanted to put some of his disciples into a wood chipper, but not once did Jesus act in violence. In fact, he rebukes Peter who grabbed a sword and cut off that soldier's ear. And so let me be clear, as a follower of Jesus, we are not in favour of violence. We are not pro-death. We are not pro-violence. But does that mean Christians should sit on the sidelines watching as evil runs amok? Do we sit in silence while we let evil have its way? Heck no. In Christ, you, me, together, We are called to make a stand. You are called to run the race and what? Fight the fight. A few weeks ago, I posted this pic on Facebook. Um, I was 14 years of age at the time uh, with my dad. We're at a gym uh, on the Gold Coast, uh, hot days, uh, times at the beach. And and my dad was, uh, still is really, (laughs) incredibly strong. You know, as a child, little kid, I just still remember thinking how strong he was. I used to swing off his arms. He was huge to me. And I used to love hearing his many stories of, you know, adventures in the world and the many different fights he used to get in and out of. He actually trained with one of Australia's greatest boxers. And I recall many times my dad would kind of teach my brother and I how to hold our stance and how to throw a left and a right and a left Right. And 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 nothing I've kind of enjoyed and felt terrified by more was like just sparring in the in the lounge room with my dad, even now. And I don't know, he's like he's getting on in he's even now I find it intimidating. Uh now I aside from the odd scuffle at high school, and there were a few of those, I never had the opportunity to enter the ring and, and fight a, a proper fight. But But looking back, I can see how the training that my dad did with me and my brother built a certain resolve and strength uh, that that, that equipped me to be the person I am today. I'd like to think that I could defend myself. I'd like to think that I could step up uh, when the moment came. But of course, as a believer, I'm reminded that our fight, the real fight, the true fight, uh, is not... (laughs) against flesh and blood. No, what, what does uh, Peter say? Oh, is it Paul? One of those guys. <laughs> we, our fight is not against flesh and blood. It's against the powers and principalities that reign and rule over this dark and evil world. Right. That's the ring we are called to enter. That's the fight you have to take on. And I share this because It appears to me we're living in this time where more and more Christians are getting caught in the crossfire of political debate and political division. Christians are fighting with the world. Christians are fighting with the church. Christians are fighting with each other. And there's nothing wrong with raising your voice. This is a democracy and expressing what you think is best is all part of living in this world. But in the midst of this, I am praying for you and for me and for our church that we would know where the true battle is. I'm praying that we would know where the real fight is. And in this, I'm praying that you'd know who you are and what it is that God has given you. Remember what Paul said? He says, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and what? the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. God sends you into battle, but he armors his church. He gifts us with a shield to defend those fiery arrows, a helmet of salvation. And then he says, take this, a sword, not a sword like Jehu, a far greater sword, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The word of God is is not just a a lamp for our feet. It's a sword to drive a dagger into the heart of the evil one. It's a sword to, to tear down his lies, a sword to expose the futility of idols and point people to something far greater. The problem is that many Christians today are not taking hold of the sword, but instead strolling around with a butter knife. A butter knife is the person who rarely looks at their Bible. A butter knife is the person who doesn't grapple with the deep truths of Scripture. A butter knife is the person who says they don't have time for the Bible but can then tell you the top five shows trending on Netflix. R.C. Sproul said, I think the greatest weakness in the church today is that almost no one believes that God invests His power in the Bible. Everyone is looking for power in a program in a methodology, in a technique, in anything and everything, but that in which God has placed it, His Word. He alone has the power to change lives for eternity and that power is focused on the Scriptures. City on a hill, this is how we step up. This is how we take action. As you think about your life, I want you to consider what it would mean to take a hold of the sword and use it for good? What would it look like for you to not just hear God's word, but to obey it? Maybe there's a commitment here to get alongside a friend who is succumbing to lies and defeat. And you're gonna walk alongside them and reject those lies and help them understand the truth and the promises of God. Maybe there's a call here for parents to be proactive when it comes to the raising of your children. As a father, I find it challenging at times to open up God's word and to declare the gospel to my children. And yet I'm trusting in faith that those seeds, that God's word wouldn't return empty. Maybe there's a call for you who are students to stand up in your university and to cast a, a better and true worldview instead of following the crowd, Stand up and declare something, a better story. Maybe there's a call for business leaders here. Instead of turning a blind eye to unjust practices and bullying in the workplace, you hold out the truth of God and push back the darkness with light. Maybe there's a call for our artists and songwriters to create art and pen songs that speak into the questions of our day and call people to a much better story. And maybe there's a call for us all to find someone in our life right now who doesn't yet know Jesus and to pray for them, to love them, to serve them, to declare the truth, the beauty, the relevance of Jesus. On this side of heaven, there is no shortage of opportunity. You are called to run the race. You are called to enter the arena. You are called in Christ to fight the good fight. But as you do that, there's one uh, brief, final, but crucial point to close with. Look at how the story ends in Kings. This is what we're told. Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel, but... Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That is the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab, according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. Jehu had all the religious trappings, a man of strength, religious zeal, a man who wasn't afraid to charge the hill, to enter into the arena. But like so many kings before him and many kings after, there was an inner battle he was not prepared to face. While condemning the sins of Israel, he himself was harboring his own sin. While judging the altar of Baal, he himself was bowing down to his own God. While waging war on others, he made peace with his own sin. Sitting on a Hill, this is what makes Jesus so remarkable. Because in Jesus, we meet the first and only righteous king. Jesus took on evil, but did so with good. Jesus pushed back darkness, but he burned his way through with light. Jesus confronted violence and hatred, and he walked in love. He is the righteous king. And it is this righteous king who not only sends you out today, but calls you to himself. Listen, the world doesn't need another religious warrior. The world needs men and women anchored in Jesus. Men and women whose first love is to worship Him, to follow Him, to seek Him. Men and women who are honest about their success but real with their struggles. Men and women who can not only call out the idols in the world but can see the idols in their own heart. Men and women who are not only passionate about the things of Christ, but Christ himself. What does it look like for you to be that kind of man? What does it look like for you to be that kind of woman? What will it take? What will it involve from you this week? Come to Christ. Celebrate the one who lived for you, the one who died for you, the one who rose for you. Take hold of the love and life that is yours in Jesus Take hold of the sword, the word of God. And let's charge those gates of hell together. Wherever you are, let's go to God now in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and active. Thank you that it never returns empty. Lord God, help us to take hold of the life and salvation that we have in Jesus. Help us to enjoy Jesus. Help us to delight in Jesus. And Lord, would you inspire within us a courage, a humility, a sacrifice, a willingness to step out of our comfort zone, to confront evil, to face into the darkness and declare your truth and to shine your light. Help us, Lord God, to be a city on a hill, unmoved by this world, bold for your kingdom, shining bright for the glory of Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.